from your favorite podcatchers and our YouTube channel featuring scenic videos, this is Kaiju Vision Radio, Episode 34, Godzilla Tokyo SOS. fans and kaiju lovers and welcome to kaiju vision radio a podcast about the appreciation of giant monster movies and discovering their historical and cultural value i'm brian scherschel and i'm nathan marchand and in this episode we will be covering the 2003 film godzilla tokyo sos the only direct sequel in the millennium series and the final movie in the uh, what we're calling the tezuka trilogy the movies from 2000 2002 and 2003 yeah, although you would have thought with how this one ended that they could have made one more. <laughs> Just saying. <laughs> Instead, we'll be doing something very different after this one. Oh, yeah. Our related topic for this episode is deflation in Japan. But before that, we will be doing our signature five-minute or around five-minute description of this film that is everything but a plot summary. And we will learn all of the basics of our film. Take it away, Nate. You're listening to Kaiju Vision Radio. Godzilla is a vicious force of nature. He comes to Japan because he is attracted by the bones of the original Godzilla inside of Kiryu. He fights Mothra, her larva, and Kiryu for dominance. Mechagodzilla slash Kiryu remains an advanced cyborg created and controlled by the JXSDF. The original Godzilla's soul within the machine seeks rest after death. Mothra and her larvae are benevolent insect kaiju believed to be deities. They want the original Godzilla's bones returned to the sea in exchange for defending Japan against Godzilla. If not, they threaten to, quote, go to war, end quote, with humanity. Yoshito Chujo, a prideful though brilliant JXSDF mechanic, works on the Kiryu ground crew and advocates for using the cyborg as Japan's only defense against Godzilla. His uncle, the retired linguist Shinichi Chujo, seeks to halt the Kiryu project because he believes it is wrong to force the soul of the original Godzilla to be a weapon. Yoshido's nephew, Shun Chujo, is a clever boy who tries to help Shinichi summon Mothra to protect Japan. The quiet and thoughtful JXSDF pilot Azusa Kisaragi tries to temper Yoshito and flies a white heron during the operation against Godzilla. Kyusuke Akiba, a doubtful and tough JXSDF pilot, joins the Kiryu squadron and often berates Yoshito because of his uncle's claims. The Shobajin are Mothra's twin fairy priestesses insisting that the original Godzilla's soul should be freed from Kiryu. The human and kaiju plotlines are unified. The characters' jobs and subplots all revolve around combating, controlling, or communicating with the monsters. The JSDF engage Godzilla with tanks, missiles, fighter jets, and macers throughout the film, but they are destroyed as usual. The Imago, or adult Mothra, is summoned by a symbol created by Shun and battles Godzilla, but she is unable to defeat him. Later, she is incinerated by Godzilla defending her twin larva. Kiryu is launched during the fight, but the cyborg is heavily damaged and loses power. The problem is solved when Yoshito repairs Kiryu and the cyborg resumes its battle against Godzilla, severely wounding him. The larva then cocoon Godzilla in webbing. The original Godzilla soul takes control of Kiryu and flies Godzilla out to sea, where it crashes them both into the Japan Trench. 
The screenplay by director Masaki Tezuka and anime writer Masahiro Yokotani is a simple action thriller with a handful of characters, a focused story, and many themes. With a healthy budget, special effects director Eiichi Asada continued the Millennium series' trademark use of both traditional tokusatsu methods and new CGI techniques. A slightly modified new Godzilla suit with a large chest scar was created for Tsutomo Tom Kirigawa. The Kiryu suit remained effective. The standout, though, was Mothra, who was realized through a combination of CGI and puppetry. This film has some of the best wing effects ever seen on Mothra or any flying kaiju. Elsewhere, CGI was used for fighter jets, missiles, and yet another underwater shot of Godzilla swimming. This is a fairly light film that explores serious themes to add gravity. Thanks to the addition of Mothra and spiritualism, this is more of a fantasy film despite all of the sci-fi trappings. Overall, this isn't an experimental film since it features many elements from past Godzilla movies. However, it does try to utilize the idea of Kiryu having the soul of the original Godzilla, a concept unexplored in the previous entry. This film reinforces the style of 1961's Mothra by featuring Dr. Chujo, the Shobajin, and a greater amount of fantasy. It also reinforces the style of Godzilla vs. Megaguirus with its story and cinematography, among other things. Godzilla against Mechagodzilla was relatively successful, so Toho greenlit a direct sequel. Mothra and Showa series actor Hiroshi Koizumi were added to further broaden the film's appeal and attract longtime kaiju fans. Like the previous entry, it was intended to be a safe and profitable film. The movie was released December 13, 2003 on double bill with the children's anime film Hamtaro Hom Hom Grand Prix, opening third at the box office. It grossed 1.3 billion yen, approximately $12 million, and sold 1.1 million tickets. TriStar released it stateside on DVD in 2004, and Sony released it on Blu-ray in 2014. It's generally liked by the fanbase. No footage was cut in the dub version. However, both the dub and the subtitles refer to Kiryu as Mecha-G because Hong Kong-based Omni Productions were concerned that using the kaiju's actual name could confuse viewers who hadn't seen the previous film and the name Mechagodzilla didn't match lip movements. There are several forces at play. Spiritualism and reason clash as characters like the Shobajin and Dr. Chujo insist that the original Godzilla's bones should be returned to the ocean, while other characters like Prime Minister Igarashi say Kiryu is Japan's only defense against Godzilla. Nature and patriotic duty come into conflict when the Shobajin promise Mothra will protect them, but she is distrusted because she attacked Tokyo in 1961. Eventually, Kiryu goes berserk again, although this time it is more benevolent toward the humans. The JXSDF continues its operations against Godzilla and maintains Kiryu. In a post credit scene, experiments are seen being conducted on kaiju DNA, presumably by the JXSDF. Many themes are expressed throughout the film. The Shobajin state that humans should not, quote, touch the souls of the dead, end quote, referring to the soul of the original Godzilla within Kiryu. A proverb inscribed on the infant island talisman says, quote, Life has to be lived within the time nature allows, end quote, which serves as a warning against violating natural laws. Dr. Chujo admonishes that humanity, quote, cross the line between mortals and gods, end quote, when they use the bones for Kiryu, which he likens to humanity creating nukes that revived Godzilla. The Shobajin later say, quote, humanity must recognize its mistakes and correct them to find redemption, end quote, which is echoed later by Prime Minister Igarashi when he says their hollow victory against Godzilla has taught them humility. This concludes part one of the podcast.
You're listening to Kaiju Vision Radio. In part two of the podcast, we do an opinion and discussion on the film that we're covering. Stonehate, what did you think of this? I like this one more on my most recent viewing than I think I have before. This isn't one I've watched very often, and the first time I saw it, I was harboring some ill will toward it because of my disappointment with the previous one, and I think that was terribly unfair. (laughs) I like this movie about five times as much as I did before we started this podcast. It is really good. I like it a lot, and I was really stunned by a a lot of features of, of it, but Essentially, the fundamentals of this movie are absolutely rock solid. This might be one of the more underestimated entries in the Millennium series. It probably is. It's sticking to a lot of Millennium series formula stuff. This is Tezuka, and Tezuka more or less created the template for the Millennium series, but it's still really good. It's like saying, oh, this Sekizawa script is just like is a lot like one of these other movies. Well, he invented the formula. He can use the formula. Seeing this movie in chronological order also improved my perception of this film because this is one of those things where, especially with the special effects in this movie, it's a kind of thing where maybe you don't miss it until it's gone. I m- missed it already with the newer movies that came out recently. I miss the technique. I miss the re- the realness of all of the things that get destroyed and all the stuff that gets blown up and the standard classic way of doing Godzilla with a guy in the Godzilla suit. There's just something to that. And this movie is a perfection of the special effects of many previous entries. But this is... Maybe the most impressive special effects of all the ones we've done so far in the podcast. It also helps that there's a lot of improvements made over the previous movie, I think, in terms of the special effects. I complained in the in the previous episode that Godzilla didn't seem to react half the time when he was being attacked. This one, that's not an issue. Even if he's being impervious to JSDF attacks, he's still responding to them. He's acknowledging that something is hitting him. And the fight scenes, my goodness. (laughs) My goodness, they are amazing in this. I forgot how good they were. But that's partly because I've often gotten this movie and the previous one a little bit mixed up. They do tend to blur together. But my gosh, we had so many cool things happen in these fight scenes. It's really stunning how a lot of this movie looks. The scenes between with the humans and the scenes with the kaiju... They look like they're from the same movie. It, it, it all goes together extremely well. It's very polished. Yeah. This, this whole movie is quite polished. The cinematography is good. You, know, you feel like you're watching a movie. And it doesn't feel like a made-for-TV movie. And the script makes plenty of sense. There's plenty of involvement of the human plot in the third act of the movie, too. We're not just going to a monster fight and then them announcing it. There's stuff going on integral to the story through the whole time. And so the humans have plenty of stuff to do. And yet it doesn't feel like the human plot is weighted too much because this movie comes off at 91 minutes. And it's I know your, your, your preferred ideal yeah. running time. Yeah. 
and everything was done that they needed to do in this movie by the time the 90-minute mark came around. We didn't spend a whole bunch of time with a bunch of pseudoscience. We didn't have a talking competition with <laughs> in the script about who can say the most stuff and who say and the most nonsense how much, how much techno jargon we can just jam into the everything it's not simple it's it's focused and it it knows what it's doing and it behaves like a godzilla movie should which is astonishing because we do have a fair amount of characters in this entry mm-hmm. we've got at least five that we follow a lot and then the shobajin are showing up fairly often throughout the film so it juggles them very well i have to say yeah, as far as length, I would rather see less time rather than have extra time and have that extra time consist of stuff that's just plain weird. And so this is going the right direction. I also like this movie better than Godzilla and Mothra, The Battle for Earth. <laughs> I'm not surprised. The, you tend to like the Millennium series more than the Heisei movies anyway. True. Um, we didn't have an Indiana Jones sequence at the beginning oh thank god <laughs> yeah th- yeah there's something to be said for that speaking of the beginning of this movie everything before the opening titles that's fantastic <laughs> it's absolutely fantastic we needed an opening like this to a godzilla movie it was so needed it's engaging there's so much stuff that we get to see that is exciting and it's funny, we, before I was complaining in Biolante about how there's, we begin with text going across the computer screen, but then what do we do? We immediately see Mechagodzilla. Oh, yeah. And we have our nice visual of Mechagodzilla that we've had in, in our two previous, uh, or our two uh, 70s Mechagodzilla mm-hmm. movies, at least especially two. But the, the last one, we had that shot as well. Mm-hmm. But then we get that. But then especially the part with them seeing Mothra and get the, getting the reveal of Mothra, the whole, the whole scene that with the Air Force. That was incredibly well done. Yeah, the, the JASDF, and they're, uh, th- that's especially good. It's realistic. It's engaging. It's exciting. It totally gets you in the mood to see a Godzilla movie. And especially from about 439 up to when the titles come across the screen. That's perfect. That's exactly how it's supposed to look. And there is indeed a way that you're supposed to make a Godzilla movie. And this is how you do that. And the music during that scene is so great, too. It's absolutely what you would want it to be. Oshima is always amazing. In the effects, especially the Air Force part. And yes. with, with Mothra. Wow, that looks great. That's probably the best looking CGI that any that this this franchise has had so far. Uh-huh. I am astonished, really, how good it is. Yeah, it holds up very well. It does probably better than any of the other, except with the exception of maybe GMK. The the CGI in this is the best looking and holds up the best out of any of the Millennium movies so far. Anyway, getting back to the special effects, all of these moments where Godzilla or Mothra or a Mechagodzilla, they're being shoved into all of these buildings. And, of course, all of those buildings are models. And then they fall apart so well as they're crumbling. And then all the smoke and all the stuff in the air, this is very, like, well-managed and very specific with how they wanted it to look. It looks incredible, all of these, especially the National Diet Building. Oh, goodness. It's like 
it's like six different pieces of that moment that we get in, in rather quick succession there as that, as that happens. That, that's really one of the greatest moments in a Godzilla movie ever for me is that and the first time I watched this, I, I, I sort of thought, uh, yeah, that's what I would expect. <laughs> you know, everybody, everybody writes jaded reviews and cynical reviews of movies now as, as like a career. People make careers out of just being a cynical jerk about stuff. Oh, you mean they go on that movie database and they just troll every movie? Yes. And, and they, <laughs> they probably work for a competing movie studio, you know. But then but, again, some studios hire people to give insanely good reviews on these movies, too. Absolutely. So they're probably trying to combat each other. Yeah. So whatever. Right. Because <laughs> uh, we're supposed to believe these are always real people that are typing this. Who knows? There could be bots typing them. But I didn't feel that this time around. It's just there's just so much more energy, I feel like, to this one compared to the last one. And maybe it's because I'm speaking as someone who felt disappointed with the last movie. But this one, it kickstarts right at the beginning and it doesn't let up. And it's always got momentum throughout the whole thing. The people involved in the movie, you can tell that they were really into it because there there's a lot of perfectionism to be seen in this movie but especially with the special effects and just how great it looks and it's it's quintessential Godzilla as far as just how all the fundamentals are right all of the, all the big stuff works really well which is why it's ironic that this was the one millennium movie I couldn't find the budget numbers on I would have been really curious to see how much money got thrown at this one because they did a lot with the money they were given. Yeah, they did. And and the models looked just perfect. Better than the models did in the 90s movies. It looks very uh, like perfected Showa series, all of the effects. And and the model for the diet building, that's impressive. Yeah. And I, there's, a, there's a behind the scenes thing. And I didn't realize it was going to be 15 minutes long of just them filming all of these awesome just moments yeah. with the models. It's B-roll footage is what it is. Uh-huh. A lot of fans might be jaded about this movie because I'm thinking of when you're talking about the the diet building. We've seen the diet building get destroyed a lot in these movies. It's almost old hat, but it's incredibly well done this time around. Fans are so used to seeing the diet building get destroyed that they don't appreciate the artistry of what's going on on screen at this time. Yeah. Speaking of that, the, this is also the best Tokyo tower destruction <laughs> of any of the movies. Okay. I, I'm getting to the point now where I'm wondering if Kaiju filmmakers just hate the Tokyo tower. Cause I think it's demolished more than I think any other building in Tokyo. Well, at some point we might actually have a Godzilla film where the Tokyo sky tree gets destroyed too. That wasn't around at this point in time. <laughs> You think, but seriously, I'm gonna. I need to start a tally. How many movies does this tower get leveled? Because <laughs> it's everywhere. So the movie starts out in Nagano, in the in Nagano Prefecture, and it's in Karuizawa. That's the name of the city that they're in, and it looks like they're in like a Japanese Aspen, Colorado <laughs> sort of place. Because Nagano is all snowy and stuff because of the Japanese Alps, but then. Something very interesting happens, and we have the Shobajin and Mothra showing up, but then uh, and then Yoshi Yoshido comes downstairs about mm, halfway through 
when, when the, our Shobajin scene. And I've been waiting for this moment for a very, very long time. And that is the time, like maybe this is the first time ever in the Godzilla series up to this point, where someone is mad at a kaiju for destroying something. <laughs> and it was a pretty long time ago, <laughs> even. Yeah, they, they're holding a grudge there. <laughs> but the thing is, he, and he, he says, pretty much he says, hey, you destroyed our city and got away with it. That is so not cool. And, and I have a problem with that. And not only was his candidness refreshing to see that to him express that, but at the same time, it's a totally realistic reaction that you would expect from somebody in a Godzilla movie. Yes. <laughs> now, back in the 1964 Gatorah film, which was episode 10 for this podcast, we had that moment where... We had our Japanese Abbott and Costello on the stage, uh-huh. and then they had the the kid, uh-huh. and they're like two of them, yeah, the yeah, other kids, and he's and they're like, who do you want to see? And they're like, Mosra. They're they're all like, yay, thunderous applause, <laughs> and that always in the back of my head, I thought, what? Okay, I guess I get it, sure. And it didn't really make I didn't really make a big deal out of it because they don't expect everything to be in these movies to be realistic. When Yoshido says that though. That's awesome. As opposed to, oh, Mothra, yay, Mothra's here. <laughs> Killed all those people, but yay. <laughs> so, and I and I laughed when it, when he said that because it's like, wow, this it's so unexpected, but yet so refreshingly unexpected. And that was something that I was thinking about as I was watching this. We talked a lot in our our Heisei film coverage about the Heisei series trying to have a tight continuity, and we were remarking that. It may pay attention to events, but it doesn't seem to have a lot of emotional continuity. This does emotional continuity ten times better than any of the Heisei movies. Well, the Heisei movies, it's almost like somebody erased people's memories. Yeah, that's what I mean. This one, <laughs> even, though this one it, even though it had continuity. Yeah, well, in this one, it's, it's paying attention to the events of the previous movie because we see scenes of reconstruction right after the events of the previous movie so it's paying attention to that i don't even the heisei movies only did that maybe once or twice and it cherry picks the the show movies that it wants to include in its timeline and then it pays attention to those just like you're talking about someone's upset that mothra despite her benevolent intentions trashed tokyo and they have every right to be upset and then dr chujo he actually he actually explains why why all that was going on. Which, and, by the way, yeah. that was an excellently done ex, uh, exposition scene. Yeah. He said everything that needed to be said. He, he said everything, and it didn't get bogged down whole, in the no, details or anything. No. It's not talking about, oh, Clark Nelson and all of this. No, it gives you the basics of what you need to know. Which, for me, the first time I saw this movie, I hadn't seen the original Mothra yet. I was aware of some of the things that happened in the movie. So it was beneficial to me at the time to have this nice little refresher. And for anyone, I'm sure, who hadn't seen the original Mothra, that was also great information to have. Getting to our part about where the the Shobajin essentially threaten Japan or, or whatever, all this. And, and I, maybe there's a bit too much of a big deal made out of that exchange. Basically, all it is is that Mothra represents the natural world, as always. And then they say that there's something really messed up about the bones and using the bones and the soul being in there. But it all makes total sense 
if you're going by the Mothra and the Shobajin and their motivations, maybe uh, the studio like focus grouped people and somebody like one person said, isn't it kind of messed up? You're using the bones of the dead Godzilla in, in Kiryu. Isn't that kind of weird? And then maybe somebody thought, Oh yeah, I guess that is kind of messed up. Maybe we should do something with that in the story. (laughs) It is a little bit odd to see the Shobajin being so, I don't want to say aggressive, but definitely threatening. It's, they've never really taken an offensive stance like that before. <laughs> but at the same time, they're they're not promising doom. No. It seems like it's easy to overstate mm-hmm. this exchange at the beginning. Because really, they're just setting up, they're setting up a conflict. Yes. It's just the opinion of weaponizing things is bad. And it's about humility. And it's about teaching them a lesson about humility. Regarding the Shobajin, they, uh, they look good. I like how they are cute. The, the, I, I will say that they are definitely cute. The effects that make them look small. That looks really good. It was. Yeah. I really don't have very many complaints. I know some people have complained that they aren't really twins, <laughs> which you can, you can tell one's a little bit taller than the other, but I frankly oh, don't that, really care. Yeah, That would just ruin the movie for me. Oh, mm. I frankly don't really care for one thing. Toho got lucky in the sixties with the peanuts and with pear Bambi when they did Ebira, but you're not going to get that lucky every time. And honestly, since the 90s, they had been getting away from doing the twin thing anyway. Especially once you got to the, the Mothra trilogy in the 90s, they the Shobajin weren't twins in any of those either. One thing I realized watching this movie, this is one of those movies that I would pick for introducing someone to Godzilla. This, along with maybe Mothra versus Godzilla... Gator the Three-Headed Monster, perhaps. Invasion of Astro Monster. Yeah. Maybe Destroy All Monsters, even. There are only there's some movies that work better than others in the series as far as introducing somebody to the Godzilla universe. And because the effects, especially in this one, look so good, and you, you'd be able to impress on people, look, this took some time, and this took a lot of ability to be able to pull this off and have it look this good. And it's real stuff. The music, I'm sure you noticed that there are a number of themes that come back in our, in our music, which mm-hmm. that's really good. And yet we have plenty of new music as well. Oshima's music is just great. It enhances the movie to almost a, a geometric or exponential degree. It does. Especially the scene at about 1814. That's where Akane shows up when Yoshi is there on, on the sort of... yes. Yeah, it's actually one of my favorite scenes in the movie, and the music is just so good. There, it, it's exuding the emotion that is necessary for the scene to actually carry off well. Also, the end credits music—that's good, mm-hmm. really good. And this music serves the Godzilla series so well. What uh, did you think of our kid in this movie? I liked him. Yes, I give him the official not annoying stamp of approval. Oh, so. He's not a Kenny? No. <laughs> he doesn't qualify as a Kenny. He actually is pretty real. He's also really clever and industrious. I'm mm-hmm. telling you, not many kids are going to take the time to go rummaging through their, their school and get all the desks mm-hmm. to make a giant symbol. <laughs> yeah, and it's good that they had him doing stuff in in the story. As opposed to just hanging around and... Hanging around in the control room all day long, yeah. <laughs> Which reminds me... That- 
I was gonna I was gonna bring this up to you. It's like they they have a control room, and that's in fact they even put a little subtitle that tells you you're in a control room. I yeah. was thinking like, oh no, Brian. <laughs> I know how you feel about control rooms. Well, this one looks great though. It looks good. It has a lot of people in it too. It's not just like five people. Yeah. And watching a big screen TV. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and, and of course there it it's the uh, the prime minister that is there, and they're coordinating all the military stuff. So they actually they are actually ordering stuff to be done, rather than just sitting back watching everything. Yeah, which by the way, the prime minister uh, who's played by Akira Nakao, oh my gosh, she's good. Yes, <laughs> he he works totally in the prime minister role. He looks like it, and he has the gravity to be able to carry it off. It, it's great. I really like him. Another. A great emotional moment, I thought, in this one was you're about 57 minutes, 20 seconds in. Yoshido is running around trying to find his uncle and his nephew, and they've been they've been buried under some rubble, and he finds them. And his nephew is really excited to see him. He's very grateful for him to be there, and he calls him uncle. And that's kind of the, their thing throughout the whole movie. Yeah. He says, don't call me uncle. And... He, he does the same thing. He calls him uncle. And he says, don't, oh, don't call me uncle. But it's it's put into this completely different emotional context. Yeah. And it's very touching because he he's running around trying to find him. He honestly thinks that they both died. So it, it, it was a very, it was a great emotional moment, I thought. Very touching. The Yoshi character overall is pretty good. Yes. Uh, he, he has a nice arc in this movie as well because he goes from being very outspoken against Mothra and advocating for Kiryu, despite all the things that they're telling him to realizing I was wrong and we need to do things differently here. Yes. I need to make the robot work because we need the robot right now. But after this, I'm done. (laughs) The scene where there there was a complaint that I saw on that movie database regarding, well, uh, the fact that they're saying, Oh, it's not, all that harrowing or tense or anything when Yoshido is working on Kiryu and trying to fix Kiryu. I thought, well, haven't there been a lot of scenes in these Godzilla movies where somebody has to repair something in time for something else? That was the last movie. I think that might be what they're complaining about. Is well, that it was all it was a lot like the previous movie because that's how know. the last one ended too. Well, and then Dimension Tide and. Uh, Mega yeah. is that he had to, had to fix the little computer program, but I don't know. Wasn't there a scene in, in, in Destroy All Monsters that they had to use this? Yeah. <laughs> they had to use that tool to cut the thing the off of the yeah. Of the, yeah. <laughs> How long was that? Like seven minutes. It was long. Felt like it. It was long. And so I, it's something that is done. I guess that it's, it wasn't boring. And it no. wasn't all that long no. either. But it, it was interesting. You, you, you had to get to that point so that Mechagodzilla could screw up again and, and then finish off the movie for us. Mm-hmm. But I didn't have all that much of a problem. I didn't. I wasn't saying, "Oh, this is so boring." I, I didn't. I didn't, wasn't complaining. Like you, like you said, professional complainers. <laughs> it might be. It's, it's just that. Yeah, this movie might initially appear as it's just rehashing stuff, but. It has its own thing going, and it looks so good, I, I almost don't even want to complain. It, the special effects look so good. Mothra looks perfect. Yes! It's perfection. 
the wings definitely are the best I've ever seen them. And then there's the atmosphere around Mothra, all of the music, the Mothra theme when, when Mothra first appears at about 3852, that appearance of Mothra, what an entrance, how to establish Mothra, how to establish an at- the atmosphere and the feeling and to get us all excited. That that's fantastic. And it's just, she has this mad, just this majestic, it looks absolutely wonderful. All the kaiju are handled amazingly well in this. Yeah, and Godzilla looks great. I have no complaints about that. And the, the way he, the way the plates on his back light up mm-hmm. before, like, it's sort of like it flickers a little bit. Mm-hmm. That's nice. Yeah, and he has a great entrance, too. Yeah. I mean, it, it's a variation of, of an entrance that we've seen a couple times before, but it looks so good in this one. Yeah. With the water swelling as he comes up and... And then all the missiles that are, that are hitting him in the water. Yes. When they're using the missile attacks. That yeah, looks good. that was, I forgot how good that looked too. Because I, I think that was a scene that they filmed in the big Toho pool, but they inserted it into an actual shot of mm-hmm. the city. And it looks dang good. Yeah. Some of the best matting I've seen in any of these movies. And we get Mothra's song again. Yeah, we do. It's a nice rendition. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure if it's those two actresses uh, who recorded that. It'd be great if it was, because they sound good. Yeah, they really does. do. Mm-hmm. So it seems like uh, Oshima didn't really change a whole lot about the song either. It's pretty much how it was before. She's just mm-hmm. doing a different recording mm-hmm. of it, which was very nice. For it's so- what you'd expect. Yeah, I mean, it would so- almost feel weird if it wasn't. Yeah, for someone who who said that she didn't listen to the music from the from the previous movies. I'm sure someone told her, you need to listen to this and make sure you get it right. Get it how it was, because this is what people are expecting. Yeah, it, yeah, exactly. And you, you, it's just like a, a lot of other Godzilla movies that have come out of Japan after this one. They're doing the same technique. Did you notice that this was the, like, the best submarine, American submarine scene yet? Best submarine scene, period, I think. Uh-huh. It's good. It, it doesn't seem so cheesy. No. It's, it seems a lot just more normal sort of temporary yes. way to do it and it, without pulling us out of the movie as much. The Americans didn't sound all that bad. and it was, it was pretty convincing. Especially, I would imagine, if you're Japanese, it would probably be really convincing. Yeah. I was thinking to myself, this time Godzilla's attacking an American sub as opposed to a Soviet sub. At least he's fair. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Some of the criticism that's been leveled against this movie is that it's mediocre, it's safe, etc. My response to all this is that it does a lot of stuff that needed to be done. The Godzilla series needed a lot of things to happen that happened in this movie. And I can suspend my disbelief with it. I like it, how it teaches us a lesson about writing past wrongs. It's a safe movie, yeah, I guess they could have taken more risks. But at the same time, it's focused, and it isn't the attack of the constant subtitles. It, it isn't a talkathon, and it, it's, there's a lot that, it's, that is going for it. I would rather that it be safe than just have it be weird or just have it be mediocre. In some ways, it's like Mothra versus Godzilla. Mothra versus Godzilla doesn't do a whole lot of new things. It just does a lot of old things really well. Right. Mothra vs. Godzilla is not an experimental movie. No. 
And, and yeah, this is a reinforcement of style. Absolutely. Just like our Mothra versus Godzilla, our, that episode is short. Yes. We didn't have a whole lot to say, but at the same time, it was really good. It's a really yes. good movie. Not having a thousand things to talk about isn't necessarily a bad thing. Now, about lessons learned and everything, we have the prime minister say that we made many mistakes in the past, and it is up to us to correct those mistakes. I think we know what he's talking about. Yeah. Yeah. You don't even need to mention. But you don't even need to say very much about this, but you still get the effect, the desired effect of what the audience should be feeling at that time. Just like in Shin Godzilla, a similar moment is felt in, our, in that elevator scene that I'm sure if you've seen Shin Godzilla, you remember. Mm-hmm. It was good. I, I liked it. it was, it's very Japanese to have this playthrough in this movie like this. Mm-hmm. And they do it without having to talk for 10 minutes about it. Yes. <laughs> they, they, they know how to get things across, sort of like in GMK with the picture of Yuri's mother. Like, we didn't even need a line of dialogue for it. We saw the picture and we knew. And, that, and this is one of those times in, in the Godzilla series where less is more. It's interesting because even though we are getting several thematic statements in this film, it doesn't feel preachy. No. There are points in the Heisei movies where it felt kind of preachy. but yeah, it's not getting here. drilled into your head. Yeah, of, but yeah. not here. No. They all build off of each other. Mm-hmm. I think that's what I liked about it. Even though it's several different ideas, they all relate back to one another. Talking about, oh, we've learned humility today, and the talisman that says life should be lived in the year in you know in the time that nature allows and 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 all of that. It all goes back to a central idea, which is do not violate natural laws, do not cheat it. Have you seen any comments regarding this film about the I guess quote nationalism or militarism in this movie? Actually, I haven't. I did about why is this sort of saying, why is this movie emphasizing all this stuff with the military? And they they implied that it was out of some nationalist, militarist, whatever, because they think all these words mean the same thing. They're not, they don't mean the same thing. And militarism is actually a very, very, very strong term that does not apply to this movie. They have the right to have faith in the self-defense forces. And the people who who join the SDF are making a sacrifice. They're devoting their time and their energy to defending Japan. And just like we thank our troops for serving, and just like we just like we support them, the Japanese have their right to patriotism. If anything, there are points where that old debate in Japan is being rehashed in this because they're saying we need this. To defend ourselves, we need Mecha Godzilla to defend us. We're gonna do it ourselves. We're not. We can't trust Mothra because Mothra trashed Tokyo forty years ago. And that's the implication: is that Japan needs to be able to defend itself, right? Yeah. Did you like the outfits that the that the JXSDF? Yeah, they still have the some of the same uh-huh. stuff that they had before. I still want one of those hats. Yeah. <laughs> um, and also, the I did like the. And again, this was just something that was just barely mentioned and they moved on because that's how you class it. That's how you do it. 
but the, it, you saw that Akane and company were going to the United States yes. to hone their flight and, and pilot skills yes. more. Mm-hmm. That's a nice touch. Well, it's essentially recognizing the military alliance and, and the, uh, the security treaty and stuff like that. It, it's obliquely referencing those things. We also got to see Hickam Air Force Base in Hawaii. Speaking of that, we, we got to see a lot of places in this movie. Yes. And when, when I watch these, when, when I've been watching these movies, I have Google Earth right in front of me on the computer. When, when a, a, some text comes along the bottom of the screen showing where stuff is, I press pause with the, with the little subtitle there, and then I type the name into Google Earth so that I can see where, where we are. And we are so all over the place at the beginning of this movie yes. I, I was having to pause this so many times and be like whoa wait where, where's this and where's that and then, and so it, this podcast has been very educational for you for your japanese geography yes <laughs> absolutely but i this was the most of of, of the location changes yeah, you that had, we've you, had in you had any Hick- godzilla movie yeah, you had ever. hickam air force base in hawaii the the bonin islands all Tokyo. over all over uh japan yeah Again, like the beginning of it, we're in Nagano. I mean, Nagano, yeah. And, but even in the the pre-title sequence, there's a ton of them in there. Oh yeah, and it's showing all these different places, and it's like, oh my gosh, another one! I have to press pause again. <laughs> so, as is Tezuka's trademark, we have a post-credit scene in this one. This is one of the more interesting ones that he's done, I think. And and Te- Tezuka was the scientist. Oh yeah, he was. Yeah. yeah, so he, he got his little. Hitchcockian cameo in there. <laughs> but so it ends with a laboratory we're hearing about kaiju DNA being experimented with. Now, some have looked at that and interpreted it as sequel baiting, that there were there were plans for Tezuka to make another film, so we'd have this little Kiryu saga trilogy. I've heard other reports that said that he that actually wasn't the plan at all. And but you had an interesting take on it, I thought. I thought it was just tying up the tying up the movie, the theme particularly just because we should learn humility and we did bad things in the past and we should right those wrongs, but the thing is that's often not how humanity works. They don't learn lessons, they just keep doing the same thing over and over again because it's easy and because not learning your lesson is easier. That I just took that as tying up the end and just making a thematic statement of, yeah, it's really hard to actually change things and it's hard to make things right because of pressure, because of indolence, because of being stuck. We'd be remiss if we didn't mention that we have yet another falling into the ocean moment in this movie. (laughs) Like we did in our last one. Like in the last one. And this is probably one of the crazier ones because it's actually into the Japan trench, which is incredibly deep. Yeah. <laughs> I just wanted to throw that in there because we always talk about it. Yeah. And we have our robot sort of committing suicide. <laughs> suicide robot, <laughs> which actually leads me into something. It realizes that the inherent, how it's inherently screwed up. Yes. <laughs> it, it heard the, and it heard the roar again. And so this time it's, Instead of going on a rampage, it's like, I'm to, done. <laughs> yeah, just let's just end it and let's have a nice little text going across the screen saying Sayonara, say, yeah, Yoshito. Sayonara, Yoshito. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, 
It's one of the weirder moments in this movie, I thought. Well, I like what all I like about 108, one, one hour and uh, eight minutes into the movie, and, and uh, it comes across the computer screen problem. Yes. <laughs> that was great, too. But uh, which leads me into something I did want to bring up. I. I mentioned that I, one of the things that disappointed me with uh, with the last movie is I thought it was sitting on an idea that was rife with story potential, and then I just I thought it wasted it with uh, the biological CPU and using the bones and the implied idea that the soul of the original Godzilla had been grafted onto the machine. Well, in this one, they make that a big part of the plot. The first time I watched this. I still felt underwhelmed by what they were doing with it. It just seemed like they were always talking about it. But then nothing ever happens until about the last probably 10 minutes of the movie. Yeah, like I said, there's stuff that's going on, but there's nothing happening. Yeah. yeah. And then Kiryu goes berserk again. And as we were kind of joking, you know, it turns into Suicide Robot and just says, okay, I'm going to get rid of Godzilla for you, and I'm going to put myself at rest. And you know what? Watching it this time... Even though it doesn't actually happen until the end, there's some nice buildup to it. It's a direction that if I was working on this film, I don't think I necessarily would have gone that way, but it doesn't necessarily make it a bad direction. It was just unexpected. So in retrospect, I give the movie a bit more credit. It actually was taking something that I wish they had done in the previous movie and actually did something with it. It just didn't do what I would have expected. Right, I didn't expect it to do that at all. First time I saw it, I was actually surprised. And I was like, oh, that's not conventional. Yeah. So, props to you guys. Tezuka's Godzilla fanboy card gets displayed a lot in this. We could go into a lot of the homages that are made, but one of my favorites is we get what I call the Showa era judo throw because Kiryu actually goes at Godzilla, then throws him over his back, and it looks almost exactly like a shot from King Kong versus Godzilla, which is why I wrote that in my notes. I learned this from a giant monkey. Yeah, it was. I like that. It was good. It was, it was very exciting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the fight is the whole. All the fight choreography is. It's top notch. It's top notch. I'm also really fond in the later on in the fight when, as I had forgotten about this until I watched this movie again recently, Kiryu makes his little drill hand, and I actually wrote in my notes, "Oh my gosh, he has a Megalon hand." Yeah, Megalon arm. Yeah, (laughs) it looks painful too. Just stabs Godzilla right in the chest with it. Well, that concludes our very largely positive review uh, of, of this film. Uh, well, and, and so we, uh, we can conclude that and we can move on to part three. You're listening to Kaiju Vision Radio. For part three of the podcast, we will be discussing a topic that was either brought up by the film or was going on at the time the film was released. This week, we'll be talking about deflation in Japan, so some more economics for you. And this is a lot of what was going on in Japan at the time. So to start out, we're going to do some explanations of some economic terms in order to get everybody on the same page, some little bit of economics 101, and then we will move into the situation that Japan is currently in. So first we have deflation. And deflation is the contraction of the supply of circulated money. So when we're talking about inflation and deflation, we're talking about the money supply. 
inflation is higher money supply, deflation is lower money supply. And there, so therefore, deflation is the opposite of inflation. And it means that in deflation, the purchasing power of money that is received is higher than they otherwise would have been. So we're talking about if you get wages and you get the same however much per week, that money is actually the purchasing power of it increases if, if the money supply decreases and therefore your money can buy more, more purchasing power. And so then consumer prices, uh, if you make an index of consumer prices, that will go down in the case of deflation. So we have lowering prices. Well, some people might be thinking, what's so bad about that? Well, if it's chronic, then that's bad. And it's not really extreme deflation that Japan has gone through in a lot of ways, but it has been chronic. And that's the difference between those two. Then we have to differentiate between uh, price deflation versus uh, actual deflation. And, and like there's a difference between lowering prices, but this mainly deflation is referred to referring to the lower amount of money supply. And that means the increase in purchasing power of a dollar or any other currency. The main body that controls inflation and deflation via, via the money supply is the central banks. And so in the United States, it would be the Federal Reserve. And in Japan, it would be the Bank of Japan or the BOJ. The governor of the Bank of Japan is Haruhiko Kuroda, and he has been in power for a while. And his specific goal as the governor of the Bank of Japan is to tackle deflation. That is his primary mission. So that is important. And he gets rid of deflation by fiscal and monetary expansion. And so what this is, is more government spending, as well as increasing the money supply. One of the tools that the central banks have is one thing called quantitative easing. Now, quantitative easing or QE, that's what we were hearing about in America in 2009 when we were talking about economic stimulus. Yes, I, I remember that. It was all over the news. Yes, the, that was the effort to recapitalize the banks for the losses that they incurred from the derivatives and the credit default swaps. Now, quantitative easing is an unconventional monetary policy in which central bank purchases bonds in order to lower interest rates and make the money supply go up. So you are flooding with everything with money. You're increasing the money supply vastly. You're giving all the, all the banks all this money in an effort to get them to lend more, take some more risk, and to make sure that there is plenty of liquidity. And but they're not printing new money. There's no. a difference. Yes, they're electronically mm -hmm. creating the money and then purchasing bonds. Yes. Central banks use quantitative easing partially when they are when interest rates are already at zero. So that tool in America and in Japan, they pretty much burned out the usage of that tool. The central bank lowered interest rates to zero. And so they, they used what they could with that. And so they can't use that as a mechanism anymore to uh, help the economy. And so then that's where quantitative easing comes in. Now, Japan has done a number of economic stimulus packages of increased government spending, all this investment in infrastructure, etc. Quantitative easing was done rather well in the United States in the uh, 2009 recession. 
and that actually did help things pick up faster. In Japan, quantitative easing has had mixed results over the years because there have been various phases of QE that they have had to do. Which brings us to a term I wasn't actually familiar with until we started prepping for this particular episode, which is velocity of money, which sounds like a good movie title. (laughs) Yeah, um, that is the rate at which money is exchanged one to another. It refers to how much of a currency is used in a given period. It's measured as a ratio of, of GNP to a country's total money supply. Gross national product. Yeah, yeah GNP is gross national product. So part, of, uh, so part of this is how fast people are spending money? Spending money, well, it's exchanging it in any way. Okay. So, yeah, and it's kind of a gauge for health of the economy in general. If money isn't being exchanged very much, then the velocity of money is, is low. And if there's plenty of investment and spending going back and forth, then that is a higher velocity of money. If there's no relationship between inflation and velocity of money, then that means that the velocity of money is unstable. That is something that Japan has been having. It doesn't matter how much inflation you're trying to create, people still aren't exchanging money. And that gets to our next term which is liquidity trap. This is another interesting one. Japan is in a liquidity trap. (laughs) The whole country is a liquidity trap. Yeah. And this is caused when people hoard cash because they're preparing for events in the future, such as a war, which is hopefully exactly not what we want. Yeah, please. Deflation and insufficient aggregate demand, which that means overall If you're looking to the future and you see demand for everything going down, that's one. And then war, that's pretty self-explanatory. And then for deflation. So what that means here is you're going to hold on to your cash if you know that it's going to have more purchasing power later. Mm -hmm. And when you're holding on to your money, you're going to keep it in the bank. And even with interest rates so extremely low... They still keep it in the bank, even though they're, they're not making much off of the bank in interest. But that still doesn't get them to spend because they know that their purchasing power is going to be better later. And this kind of goes along with the consumption tax because the government has had to raise the consumption tax so much as an effort to try to raise revenue. And that what does that do? That discourages spending as well. Yes. And so even with quantitative easing, the flooding of all of these financial institutions with money from the central bank, there's money everywhere, but the banks aren't lending it. And so they're not spending it on private investment. Instead, what are they doing? They're buying bonds with it. They're turning around and buying more bonds. Because that's safer right now. And the banks are really risk averse. So they're not going to spend money. And businesses are risk averse. And so are people as investors. They're risk averse. And so all of this money, it's like it's getting frozen. Everybody holds on to the money. It's frozen to them. And then the banks are holding on to so much money. And so that's what we mean by money velocity. Money just is not moving very much. And part of this was is that when banks lost money, they had to be recapitalized. So a lot of that money, it went to do what? It had to cover bad debt. And that's one reason why they're not lending the money back out again. It's kind of frozen there. And so in a liquidity trap, increased money supply, no matter how much you're doing, that is not lowering interest rates. Another behavior that's going on is that the elderly in Japan, which there are quite a few of them, they receive pensions. And they receive pensions even if they are rich. 
it does not matter. But the thing is, they're holding on to that money. It's not being spent. It's being socked away in the bank. Part of it is expectations of the future are for more deflation. And that's another thing is that when you have a central bank that is predicting more inflation in the future and your long term, your country is geared, everybody knows there's going to be more deflation in the future. And so we have a, a cycle where it's future expectations of deflation contribute to more deflation. And so it just keeps everybody frozen in their behavior. They aren't going to spend more because everybody knows that deflation is probably going to continue. And so it's the expectation of it keeps it going. And this is putting a tremendous amount of pressure on Japanese young people because as the number of elderly increase in Japan and the number of young people continues to decrease, they're the ones who have to pay into this system in order to supply those pensions. It's a lot like the Social Security system here in the United States. Only it's the percentage of elderly people. That's yes. the most important because uh, right about this time that we're doing this podcast, uh, Japan has reached peak elderly numbers of people, but is is going to get worse because the number of the of the old people is going to go down along with the rest of the population in the future, but the percentage or the ratio of workers to pensioners, that ratio is going to get lower and lower to the point where the young people are burdened as having to pay the taxes in order to keep the system going. But there aren't very many of them, ratio-wise, to the elderly. And it's even harder because since they're younger, they don't have as much disposable income. So they're paying all of these taxes while also trying to make sure that they can take care of themselves. And a lot of the best jobs are held by people who aren't young people. Yeah. And so the, the young people have to get jobs that aren't as good in wages in order to uh, survive. But then they have to pay a huge amount of the tax burden. And then when you have a consumption tax that's high like this in Japan, everybody has to pay that consumption tax. The, the poor, the rich, everybody. Only if you're rich, the consumption tax doesn't hurt you as much. And if you're lower income, the consumption tax will hurt you more. And that goes to the fact that when there's deflation and you have debt, the amount that you owe, or at least the power of that amount, is more. So if you borrow money and then that money becomes worth more, the purchasing power of that money increases, then your debt burden increases. And when you're Japan and you have a the highest in the world when it comes to the debt-to-GDP ratio... You don't want all of the debt that you have to service to be worth even more than you know as the days go on and years go on. To help put this into perspective, think of it like this. Say you borrowed $50 today, but then because of deflation, the value of that money goes up and it'll be $55. So it increased your debt despite the fact that you didn't take any more money out of the bank. And this happens with anybody's debt, the bank's debt, personal debt, and as well as national debt. So a very scary position there as well. You want, you want some inflation so that the value of that money decreases. Now we can get to the big idea here, which is the 
downward spiral or the deflation cycle. And this is a very scary concept as well. If you start with deflation, you have lower prices for goods and services. I guess maybe some people would think, oh, that, that'd be great. Well, sometimes it is, sometimes it's not. There's good deflation, and then there's just chronic deflation, chronic mild deflation, which is what Japan has been hit with. So when you have those lower prices for those things, then that means that there's less money moving around because of the lower prices of goods and services, but also the company that makes those goods or services makes less money. As a result, that puts pressure on them, and then they have to lower their production in order to try to keep the price of that good up, and then when you lower production, what happens? You have to lay off workers, you have to reduce wages. And so then that results in increasing unemployment, because you have to let people go. But the thing is, when they don't have any wages, then they're not going to spend as much. Yeah. And that means less spending on goods and services. And in turn, lower demand for the goods and services. Which then leads to oversupply of goods and services. Yes, because of the the decreased aggregate demand for those goods and services. And then that does what? Lower prices. So it's right back to the beginning of the cycle. Yeah. And so that is our vicious cycle that Japan has been going through. And and really, uh, Europe has had deflation as well. Uh, the United States, not as much, but we have had deflation. Um, not chronic, though. But uh, Europe is a bit more chronic. But uh, Japan is like the, the textbook case for it. And they're, they're doing everything they can to try to cause inflation and to try to get people to spend money in order to increase the velocity of money and get the economy more healthy. But now everybody's stuck. It's a, it's a rut. And of course, there's good inflation. There's bad inflation, too. But this is chronic deflation. An interesting note here is that there's been pressure uh, from the government to businesses to raise wages. And so what's the thinking behind that? If you increase their wages, people will spend more. And the problem is... They're not. They're not. They hold on to it. And so then that money gets spent, but it doesn't go back into the economy. And so there's another... It it seems like this is a series of dead ends. Yeah. And nobody seems to be able to change their spending behaviors. Because the United States, our consumer economy is so gigantic. Consumer spending drives a huge portion of the United States economy. Huge. A lot of people... They spend what they have, they go paycheck to paycheck. And sometimes it's because they have to, and sometimes it's just because of their spending behavior. Saving money in the United States is not our strength. There's a bad part to that, but there's also the good part, which is the economy does pretty well. Yes. And we are even in, uh, we have sort of low GDP growth, but it is continuing on. It's a, it's, it's a steady it's a, growth. Yeah, it's getting steady and... It's not as as bad as just very, very small GDP growth that Japan has had for a while. And sometimes they perform a little bit better than that, sometimes a little bit worse. Yeah, we mentioned that at the end of every episode. <laughs> yeah. Another little system that's working for more deflation is that the yen is devalued more in order to try to increase exports and try to make goods cheaper to other countries. But the problem is, is that when your currency is devaluing, you don't want to spend it 
you want to hold on to it more. And so there's just so many pressures in Japan to hold on to their money and to save. And also, by the way, everybody, Japan has really, really serious disasters. Yes. And they can hit a lot of people. They're unexpected. And that is another reason for the saving culture in Japan is prepare for the future because they live in a dangerous area in numerous ways of speaking. That's another thing that makes them spend less. We need to mention that the BOJ's goal is to reach a 2% inflation rate. And that's what's considered for good, a good healthy amount of inflation for the economy. And that would improve things. But it is a, a hard target to get to. Especially in their current condition. Within the context of inflation, we would be remiss if we did not discuss a little bit about the aging slash depopulation of Japan. And it's because when you have a declining population, that means lower aggregate demand for pretty much everything. It also means you have fewer workers, so fewer people generating money and spending money. And especially supporting the pension system. Uh-huh. And, of course, everybody knows about a lot of this stuff with the depopulation of Japan. We're not going to be redundant. We know about the low birth rate, the uh, very, very high life expectancy, inverted population pyramid, which means you have huge amounts of old people and barely enough at all uh, uh, younger people and working age people enough to support the entire system and keep it going. Actually, the peak population in the 20th century in Japan of young people was in 1955. That was when Japan hit peak young people. And then Japan, their working age population peaked in about 1985 before that started going down. And then we reached peak elderly somewhere around 2010-ish or so. And then that number starts going down as well. So you have an overall decrease in the population of all three of those age groups. However, the percentage of the elderly goes up. Another thing we kept running into was how adult diapers in 2014 uh, outsold baby diapers. That's a That's, weird concept. I mean, that, that just kind of says it all. <laughs> yeah. And one reason why people aren't having children is why. High cost of raising children. More women are in the workforce. There's a poor uh, life-work balance, you know, so people are, are working too hard. And then everybody's living in such so many small living areas, and so it makes having children just kind of impractical from that aspect. Yeah, because Japan for a long time has been a very densely populated country. Yeah, and so small living spaces, very urban um, environments that everybody, nearly everybody is, is living in, and more people are moving to the Tokyo uh, metropolitan area than ever uh, percentage-wise, and so there are all of these rural communities that are depopulating, and these mid-sized cities are also having problems like uh, Sapporo, Nagoya, uh, uh, Hiroshima, various others, and, and the, the country is trying to help these mid-sized cities by attracting more people there, but it's, it's quite hard because a lot of people are moving to Osaka and to Tokyo. And there are something about, we've found 8 million abandoned homes in Japan. Another term that everybody has run into lately has been parasite singles, 
where where it's uh, people who are well into their uh, you know middle age practically, and they're still living with their parents. Mm. Yeah, and they're and they're called parasite singles because they're just hanging on, and and yet uh, sometimes they're required to be there to take care of family or be, because they have a, a situation where they don't have to spend very much to live. And so they're cutting their cost of living. Yeah. And this is something that's been a topic of discussion in our own country, because that's been happening a lot over here as well. So it's something that we as Americans would be very familiar with and sympathetic to the Japanese, I think. Yeah. There are parts of the United States population that are mimicking this trend, uh, probably more of the European population, because the European population in Europe is having a lot of the same issues, especially in places like Italy, Germany, a few others uh, that are particularly um, older. But the percentage of elderly people is increasing quite uh, significantly. A figure we ran into also was the uh, the fact that they're closing primary and secondary schools, hundreds of them per year. And some of them are being turned into uh, centers for elderly people. And so it's just society is changing so rapidly. Is it, it, Japan is the most rapidly aging society in, in the world. Yes. Uh, think of it like this. In 1947, the median age in the Japanese population was 22. But by 2010, it had increased to 47. This plugs into the labor shortage as well, is that the number of working age people is going down. And so when in Japan, when you go to look for a job, the figure we ran into was 125 jobs for every 100 people applying for jobs. And so there are jobs in Japan that literally aren't being filled, and there's, but it's work that needs to be done. And that gets us to immigration. And the fact that Japan would have to import like tens of thousands of people every month in, in order to get up to uh, to keep and maintain the working age, or even in general, the total population of the country. It is a very daunting set of figures as well. And there are a number of reasons why this isn't happening. And, and, part, and mostly it's because of the homogeneity, or perceived homogeneity, of uh, Japanese uh, culture and of the Japanese people as a nation. And, that is, uh, and that's something we've discussed on the podcast before. Yeah, we have. And this, and so there's a lot of pressure to not allow foreigners in, uh, and it's also the the fact that they think uh, there might be foreigners committing crimes. And the average farmer in Japan is 70 years old. That's crazy, amazing, yeah. And yeah. so it, th- these kinds of figures are incredible. But this does plug into inflation in that there's lower demand all, for everything, lower aggregate demand, and so that means lower demand for housing, and so housing prices go down. Currently, Japan's population is 126 million, and Prime Minister Abe has instituted a policy to try to prevent the Japan's population from dropping below 100 million. The loss of population is actually increasing, uh, and it's, that's what's creating all of the stress on uh, people in Japan and their minds about how, how much the population is dramatically going down. There was a formula that was created at a university in Japan, and they, it said that in the year 3,776, that is when uh, Japan will have one child remaining. This is probably a very easy formula that they did in order to calculate that, and that, and that was to help create awareness about this issue. Japan's total population in 2060 is expected to fall to 87 million people, which is 
absolutely shocking. Yeah, we're talking about a loss of about 40 million people in about 30 years. Yeah. That is insane. Yeah. The United States does not have as much of a problem in this department with population and depopulation. And uh, a lot of that is made up for immigration and all these visa programs and all, the, all these other things. And regulating immigration is a, a big hot button issue in Japan, but it also is here. But it's uh, if you if you don't let anybody in, then your prospect of having enough working age people is going to go, to go way down. Well, all this talk of economics has reminded me we got to do our trademark economic figures. Yeah, for 2003 in Japan, uh, they had 1.68% growth. So it was a little better than the past two years that we've had to deliver this figure. But it's uh, it, they're trying to get out of it, out of the lost decade here. And we'll uh, keep following along with their progress. On a different, happier note, our next film is going to be 2004's Godzilla Final Wars. Ooh, baby, this is going to be a fun one. Yes, we will be entering the Japanese Matrix. And with the Japanese X-Men. <laughs> Until next time. We'd like to send a shout-out to our patrons Kiyoe Toshi and Sean Stiff for pledging at the Kaiju Visionary level. Thank you for your support. We really appreciate it. If you'd like to get a hold of us and send us some feedback, we'd love to hear from you. Our email address is feedback at kaijuvision.com. You can also follow us on Twitter and on Facebook. Our podcast is available on Google Play, iTunes, Stitcher, Blueberry, TuneIn, Podcast Addict, our YouTube channel, and on our website, kaijuvision.com. Thanks to Audiophiliac for creating our theme and bumper music, www.fiverr.com slash audiophiliac. If you like our podcast, please support us on Patreon. I'm Brian Scherschel, and I edited this podcast. And I'm Nathan Marchant, and I'm the podcast webmaster. Sayonara! Sayonara!